0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 3, where Brother Nathan will be preaching for us this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read for us that sermon text. those verse 14 verses of Galatians chapter 3. As you know, we've been walking through this book. The Gospel is the DNA of the Christian life, and Paul acts like a geneticist as he walks the Gentiles through their DNA, chromosome by chromosome. And this is what we will see again this morning. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Let me begin for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one, "...is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree." So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well,
1: good morning, church. In part, I'm glad that Tim got to read the text so that you could see that your pastor's assigned 14 verses not a uh, not me so so hopefully you've uh, found your way to galatians chapter 3 galatians chapter 3 i confess this morning that it's an interesting task to stand before people and to consider a letter an angry letter cuz if if paul was a geneticist, then he was more like an angry scientist at this point, Um, but to consider a letter, an angry letter, that wasn't written to us. In fact, it wasn't even written in our language or in our cultural context that was even remotely close to our own. It almost feels as if we're reading someone else's mail. So we have quite a task at hand, so if you would pray with me for God's help. Father, only you can work the miracles that are necessary today. So I'm asking on behalf of your church, would you be gracious to us, that by your Spirit you would illuminate your word to your people for our good and for your glory. Amen. So we come this morning to a frustrated Paul. And before we go anywhere, we need to figure out what Paul is so chafed about. Something has obviously disturbed Paul. Something has caused him to call the Galatians foolish and to accuse them of being accursed or under an evil spell. And so if you would let me, perhaps I can summarize it like this. There are perhaps three charges initially in Paul's uh, points of frustration. The first is that the Galatians appear to have forgotten their hope for salvation. He says, do you remember how you came to Christ in the first place? You heard the Gospel preached, you believed, and the Holy Spirit was poured out and you were changed. But none of this was because of your ability to obey the law. Paul also says that the Galatians had forgotten their hope for sanctification. He says that you began by the Spirit, why would you turn back to the flesh? Additionally, Paul says in these first five verses that they had forgotten how God had demonstrated His faithfulness to them. That even the scars of the suffering and persecution that the Galatians bore were in fact trophies of God's constant faithfulness to His people, even in the midst of suffering. It is Paul who is in some pleading, Do not be tricked. Do not be tricked into slipping into believing a counterfeit gospel. Now, before we, we go much further, perhaps it would be helpful to remember that as we come to this text today, we come acknowledging that this is God's Word, that it has been preserved, and it is profitable, and it is useful, and is worthy for our careful consideration. We acknowledge that with the Scriptures, we have found that there are often many difficulties. Paul's argument is dense. It's confusing. I read this text over and over and over and over again. It is confusing. But here's what I've found. That with the Scriptures, hard sentences often hold magnificent truths. And that is the case for us this morning. It is a text that though it is written to a people in a different culture two millennia ago, and it seems to be written on an occasion that may not have much re- relevance to us. Perhaps, you know, I doubt that anyone here is tempted in trusting the Jewish moral, legal, and social law for justification. I'd be surprised if I, if I learned otherwise. And I'd, I'd take it even a step further to say that I doubt anyone here would confess that they're even trusting in their good deeds to be made right with God. So, how does this text relate to us? I'm going to suggest that this text is remarkably relevant to us for two main reasons. First of all, the temptation that the Galatians were facing is a temptation that the church is facing today. Their temptation was not to abandon the gospel. Their temptation was to add to the gospel. The church in Galatia had slipped into what may be the single most destructive danger in the life of a Christian, and that is Jesus plus something. Jesus plus. A second reason that this is so important for us is that Paul is answering in excruciating detail What is the most important, the most relevant question throughout all of history? And that is this. How can man be made right with God? How can man be justified before God? I'm going to suggest that to understand understand Paul's argument, that we would be helped by identifying three different kinds of justification that appear throughout this text. And in an attempt for clarity, I'm going to try to structure the rest of our time together through these different types of justification. These three choices for justification are as follows. I think we have this up on the screen. Active righteousness, passive righteousness, and what I'm calling semi-active righteousness. So, let's begin. What do I mean by active righteousness? Well, take a look in your text. We see several different phrases that are scattered all throughout these first 14 verses. Let me just read a few of them briefly. Verse 2, Did you, not receive, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Verse 3, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The works of the law appear again. Verse 5. Verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law... Verse 11, no one is justified before God by the law. And then in verse 13, the curse of the law. Paul is using some extreme language and coming down hard on the Galatians for their relationship with the law. It almost sounds like that the Galatians are fools for liking the law so much. And is that now, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It almost sounds like that they were fools for liking the law so much, and it almost sounds like that Paul is even anti law. Now, from our cultural and historical perspective, we may feel even more unable to relate to why the law was so appealing to the Galatians. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard much about the law and you probably not you probably don't feel very attracted to the law. This temptation probably feels extremely foreign to you. So, let's consider what exactly was the appeal of the law for the Galatians. Furthermore, let's consider what is appealing about the law. How does it appeal to us? I'm going to suggest that the law appealed to the Galatians for a couple reasons. And that these reasons are the exact same reasons that the law is appealing to us in 21st century modern America. The first is this. The law is beautiful. The law is beautiful. God is the author of the law. The law is an expression of God's moral beauty. The law is perfect. It's a moral reflection of God's character. This is why the psalmist cries out over and over and over again in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law better than a thousand pieces of gold and silver. Oh, I delight in your law. And it's not just an Old Testament theme. Paul in Romans chapter 2 gives us remarkable psychological insight into the workings of the human heart. Paul says that by default, the law is written onto the hearts of mankind, suggesting that when we are born, we are pre programmed to be lawkeepers. Now, this is amusing because I have a year old daughter and she is not a lawkeeper. Right? If you have children, you can probably attest to this, right? But Paul is suggesting that we were pre programmed to be law keepers, that we know that we are supposed to obey a higher moral standard. Paul says in Romans chapter two, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Friends, as humans, we are wired in such a way that we naturally delight in the standard of the law. Life without law is chaos, and life without a good law or life without a beautiful law is oppression. The law is beautiful, and we are naturally drawn to its beauty. But I think there's another reason why the law appeals so much to our hearts. And let's call that this morning the hope of the law. The hope of the law. But what do I mean by the hope of the law? It's simply this the law seems to offer a ticket. The law seems to be the way. You see, the law reveals God's standard for humanity. And and that's a big deal. The human condition is not that there's a God and that He's displeased, but we just don't know how to please Him. No, the condition of humans is that there is a God and that He is displeased, but we do know how to please Him. And that's to obey the law. You see, the law is made comprehensible to us. It's clear. It's clear. I mean, th- just think of this picture. When Moses ascended up to Mount Sinai and he came back down with the law, how did he bring it down? It was written down. God wrote it in a way that we can understand. It was written in human language in a way that we can grasp it and understand it. And we get it. Law makes sense. We love law, we love its structure, we love the order that it brings. And since law reveals God's standard in a way that we understand, it seems to be our ticket to God. Our hope. Our ticket for righteousness. The law is the ten-step process for how to be on good terms with God. Jesus even said this, you want to know how to go to heaven? Keep the law and you're good. The law is the holiness of God translated into a human standard by which we may be justified the hope of the law is that if you obey then you are justified before god and you are justified before man and you don't need any help that is the hope of the law it seems to be the answer for the human condition and did the pharisees not buy into this hook line and sinker This is what I mean by active righteousness. Righteousness that is based on human ability. But there's a problem, isn't there? There's a problem. And let's call that the curse of the law. Let's let's jump down to verse 10, where we see, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Whoa, wait a minute. I thought you just said the law was good. I thought you just said the law was good news. This text seems to be be saying something totally different, does it not? It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse why well the text tells us that too cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the books of in the book of the law and do them the curse of the law is human inability the curse of the law how could how could a curse be a part of a good law We know that the law is good. We know that it's from God. We know that it's the legal standard that is derived from His beauty, from His justice, from His holiness. So what's the problem? Did you notice that word in verse 10? For all who rely. All who rely. The curse is not the law. The curse is tied to reliance upon the law. Reliance upon the works of the law. The curse is reliance on our ability to keep the law. Is this not the clear assumption in verse 11? Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Paul's assumption is is obvious and it's clearly this. We don't keep God's law. We don't, we don't even come close. Countless numbers of times, we have forsaken God's law by its letter and by its intention. We view it as restrictive and imposing, scorning it, constantly saying, I know better. What does God know? And we can't even live up to our own standards. Can we not? you think about your life, not only can we not live up to God's standards, we can't even live up to the standards we set for ourselves. Humans' inability, our human inability and our failure to keep God's law is so apparent, so extensive, so well documented and verifiable that look what Paul calls it in verse 13 the curse of the law. And this brings up what I think is a really helpful point in understanding the purpose of the law. And that's this the law simply reveals God's standard. It doesn't enable us to keep it. The law reveals God's standard, but it doesn't enable us to keep it. I've recently become intrigued by chess. And please don't give me any wedgies or noogies in front of my daughter. I understand. Um, it's, a, it's a game of remarkable complexity and skill. has deep history. Some of the brightest minds in the world are interested in it. And I was recently reading a column of a man who had read or interviewed seven grandmasters. And grandmasters is the highest ranking in chess. There are none in the United States. And he asked them, what advice would you give to beginners? Right? And out of all seven, four of them said the same piece of advice. Listen to this. Find the best, the best place on the board for each piece and put it there. Find the best place on the board for each piece and put it there. That is the most unhelpful advice I have ever heard. Right? If I could do that, I would be the grandmaster. I would be giving the lame advice. Okay, so for those of you who are completely geeked out towards me, let me give you a basketball illustration. It's like a basketball coach telling his player, when you shoot, be sure you make the shot. (laughs) Right? That's not helpful. My problem is not that I don't know the rules of the game. My problem is I have a mediocre jump shot. I know the goal. I know the rules. I just can't do it. Reflecting on this point, an old author once said, A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. Friends, the law of God is the perfect standard, but it is completely powerless to produce change in our hearts. And so we turn, finding ourselves grossly unable to obey. And so we see that the curse of the law is that we are unable to keep it, but the curse continues. Because the curse is not just that we are unable to keep it, but the curse is the consequence of our failure, and that is death. Look with me at verse 10. The curse of the law is death. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 27 here and reminds his readers of the long-standing consequences of disobeying God's law, something we've talked about quite a bit in our Christian growth groups. The language that Paul uses later, reflecting on this, is what? For the wages of sin is death. Capital crimes demand capital punishment. And treason against the Almighty God is the most despicable, backwards, treasonous, treacherous crime that is conceivable. Death is not only the only acceptable punishment, it's the only appropriate punishment. Friends, if you and I could see, even for a moment,
0: and behold
1: the beauty of God, and understand and believe in his perfect reflection of the law. we'd be like the psalmists, or we'd be like Jonah, who is constantly frustrated and shocked when God doesn't wipe out the human race in their sin. The reality is, we are all guilty. So there's clearly a problem with this first type of righteousness, active righteousness. Right? There's clearly a problem. Are there any other options? Yes. Let's keep going. A second option is what we can call passive righteousness. What do I mean by passive righteousness? Well, Paul makes the case for this in two parts. First, we see a discussion of Abraham, the man of faith. And then secondly, we see the curse of the cross. So let's consider... Abraham, the man of faith. Let's actually jump back a few verses and read verses 6 through 9, where Paul says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's whole argument in this section, if you can follow it, is that salvation is the blessing of Abraham. That salvation is the blessing of Abraham. So what does that mean? Right? To consider and to understand the blessing of Abraham, we have to first consider God's promise to Abraham. So let's walk through this briefly. God's promise. The text says in verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so what did he believe? Well, we read it this morning yeah. um, as, as we listened and heard the word of God together. God's promise to Abraham was multifaceted. But the specific part of God's promise that Paul is quoting here is in Genesis chapter 15 where he says, as we heard this morning, You, your very own son, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look up toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and was counted to him as righteousness. The promise was that God would give Abraham a son. And this is no small promise. Because there's a couple really interesting circumstances about the story that you're probably familiar with. At this point, Abraham was probably about 75 years old. He and Sarah were obviously well past childbearing years. Presumably, they had probably tried to have children, maybe even for 50 years. They had probably given up completely. It was an impossible thing to hope for. It was an impossible thing to hope for. But notice Abraham's response in verse 6. And here we see Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. Abraham took God at his word. Abraham looked at the circumstance and said what it was impossible. He saw there's nothing he could do. He had, in fact, been trying for years to achieve this with no success. He and Sarah had so little faith in their ability to produce a child that even after the promise, what did Sarah do? She laughed at God. She laughed. It was hilarious to her. She sinfully laughs even at the thought of God Himself being able to produce a child from her body. The task that was at hand was impossible. No matter what Abraham did, he could not do it. He was helpless. He was a passive actor in a drama yet to be unfolded. If this was going to happen... God was going to have to do it. And so what did Abraham do? Abraham placed his confidence in God's promise to work on his behalf. Remember that phrase, to work on his behalf, where he was completely unable to help himself. Abraham placed his confidence in God's promise to work on his behalf, where he was completely unable to work or help for himself. And then... Quietly, a staggering truth came booming down from heaven into the course of human affairs that would change everything. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted or numbered or considered to be righteousness. That means a man who is not actually righteous can be considered righteous as if he is actually righteous. What about what about the law? What about the curse? Well, we'll have to wait and see because we're not done with God's promise to Abraham yet. Verse 8 says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so now we see that this promise was a blessed to be a blessing to the nations. The text says, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Did you hear that? Did you catch it? Paul explicitly says that this message given to Abraham was the gospel. The Gospel was that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The message that was given to Abraham was that man can now be justified by faith. Righteousness applied through faith is now the hope for humankind. And he goes on to describe the scope of God's blessing, saying, "...in you all the nations shall be blessed." And all of a sudden we realize that this promise is not just about one family's infertility. The promise was not just for Abraham and his progeny. The scope was much greater. Namely, all the nations. Abraham was not going to be the only one who was justified on account of faith or someone else's righteousness. God was taking this blessing global. What was the blessing? The gospel. Justification through faith. This gospel blessing, the blessing that God promised would reach every man, on every nation on earth, was only partially revealed though. Do you see that in the text? In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The blessing of justification by faith was preached to Abraham but it was not yet accomplished. The blessing of justification by faith was preached to Abraham, but it was not yet accomplished. So let's turn our attention to now how this can be accomplished. We've already considered the curse of the law. Let's now consider the curse of the cross. Two crucial components of what Christ accomplished on the cross will help us here. Verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Friends, these dear sentences hold the most remarkable and precise truths that were ever considered by the human mind. And let me let me try to summarize them in just two words. Redemption and substitution. Redemption and substitution. There are many important words in the Scriptures relating to Christ's work on the cross. Here we have two. Redemption and substitution. The text says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. To redeem means to buy, or to buy back, whether it's by purchase or by ransom, as John Stott describes it. Another definition which I thought was most helpful is simply to buy off. To buy off. To redeem is to buy off. And keep in mind that this concept of redemption was probably much more familiar to the ancient, original readers of this than it is ours, because... In this world was was common. It was much more commonly used because of a thriving slave market. Slaves would be redeemed or purchased at a ransom, and that was considered to be the price of release. To redeem meant to buy back enslaved property. To buy back enslaved property or to pay off a debt. And think of this. God's holy law demands, cursed be everyone who does not abide by everything in the law. The the curse, the debt, this was God's idea. God ordained the curse. God could not look the other way. God couldn't break His own law. He would cease to be God. God. Instead, he would be a wishy-washy, inconsistent, unrighteous imposter. But since we are unable to keep the law, and since lawbreakers are justly enslaved to the penalty of death, we must die in our slavery or be redeemed. We must die in our slavery or be redeemed. So the question is now, How does a holy God uphold the righteousness of the law and accomplish redemption? How does a holy God uphold the righteousness of a law that is a reflection of His own character and purchase slaves? God's answer is substitution. So we've discussed redemption briefly, now substitution Christ became a curse for us. The Scriptures proclaim that Christ became the curse for us. He was our substitute. The law demands that lawbreakers bear the curse. But Christ, the only law keeper, stood underneath the totality of God's righteous judgment and wrath. The curse was not the law. The law was good. He didn't redeem us from the law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, which is death and our inability to obey it. The curse of the law that Christ bore was the curse of God's law. It was God's curse of His law. And though He was put to death at the hands of wicked men through a horrible miscarriage of justice, let's make no mistake about it, Christ was not killed. He laid down his life. And God poured out the full scope of his wrath on our Lord. Friends, listen to me carefully. God does not forgive sin. God forgives sinners. God does not forgive sin. God forgives sinners. This is how verse 14 is possible. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And so now we come full circle. The blessing that God initiated with Abraham, namely that the righteous can be justified not by obedience but by faith, Christ's work has now secured it and then the blessing has extended it Christ has now accomplished this work, this blessing, and now He's extending it past Abraham, past Isaac, past the Israelites, past the Jews, to all the nations. So that now those of faith who are actively relying on God to work on our behalf where we are completely unable to do so, now we too are blessed with Abraham where now righteousness comes through our faith in God's ability to do what He has demanded. So we've considered active righteousness, which is keeping God's holy law. We've considered passive righteousness, in which we trust Christ, the perfect law keeper. But I'm going to suggest that there's a third kind of righteousness in this text. It's a, it's a kind of righteousness that I'm calling a semi-active righteousness. Do you remember Paul's blistering rebuke to the Galatians that I summarized at the beginning in verses 1-5? through Who is he talking to? He's talking to the churches of Galatia. Churches are made up of Christians. Paul's talking to Christians. This means that by very definition, these Christians have acknowledged that they fail at active righteousness. They've acknowledged that their hope is in passive righteousness. Righteousness given to them. And that they must receive it as a gift through faith. So what's the occasion of Paul's rebuke? Could it be that these Christians were slipping back into trusting in the hope of the law? They didn't abandon the gospel. They just wanted to add a little bit to it. They wanted to add a little bit of contribution to their justification. Now, we could spend quite a long time teasing out this dynamic because we're all so prone to do it, but instead, let me summarize it like this. We are so hardwired to be law followers that we can fall off the gospel road into one of two ditches. One is pride, and the other one is that of insecurity. We could fall off the gospel road into the ditch of pride or into the ditch of insecurity. Here's how this works itself out. For pride, this Christian, this Christian would say, God loves me. Why wouldn't he? This Christian takes the law, dumbs it down to a a law that he can keep, and then convinces himself that he keeps it. He then finds his security and his identity and his confidence in his ability to keep that law. He has little problem expecting God's acceptance or God's blessing. He says, Jesus died for me, and look, I obey. This Christian is difficult for others to live with. He's difficult for others to... He, uh, and he, he struggles to understand confession, forgiveness, prayer. Those are difficult concepts for the, for the Christian who falls off on the side of pride. When criticized, this Christian is defensive and hostile and denying and is quick to turn and respond with a criticism of his own. His hope is in the law plus his ability, to, his hope is in the gospel plus his ability to keep the law. But I think there's another ditch alongside the gospel road. And that is of insecurity. This Christian would say, I don't know how God could could ever love me. Why should He? He's spiritually moody. He's constantly analyzing his performance. The Christian life to him is a major frustration in which he is constantly trying to prove his love for God. His demeanor is usually downcast and he considers struggles with little success and is unable to break sinful habits in his life. He often fails to see past his own struggle with sin and consider the needs of others. He may be willing to agree with the criticisms that others bring against him, but then he in turn responds by being devastated, depressed, and living in the pit for days. And every once in a while when he obeys, he finds himself feeling a little better. But all he's really done is crawl up into the other ditch. The ditch of pride. Friends, we're just like the Galatians. We're so prone to be duped, are bewitched into believing another gospel, prone to forget the declaration of the cross, which has been so vividly preached to us, that it is as if Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before our eyes, and we turn away. Instead of trusting in the Spirit, which we received through faith, we are now eager to prove ourselves before God and for other people. So at this point, let me... Let me say this, for those of you who are here that do not trust Christ to be your Savior, let me say this, God's law says that you are far worse than you realize. Death is coming. God's law says that you are far worse than you realize. Damnation is coming and that is the only hope for you. unless you turn to justification through faith. And that's the end of the story. For those who are saved, we can look to Christ and His accomplishment on the cross and we hear the same refrain. The law says that we are far worse than we ever realized. But the Gospel says that we are far more loved than we ever dared to dream. We are far worse than we ever realized, but the gospel says that we are far loved. We are loved far more than we ever dared to dream. And so to those who are not saved, my plea for you is this. Cease striving. Cease striving. You cannot live up to the works, to the standard of the law that God demands. Christ took our place in my place condemned he stood and then the wrath of God was satisfied on our behalf so now how do we live inside of the gospel how do I stay on the gospel road without falling off into the ditch of pride or the ditch of insecurity it's by trusting squarely in this truth in Christ there's nothing I can do that can make him love us more make me that can make you love me more and nothing I could do to make you love me less. In Christ, there's nothing that I can do that can make you love me more and nothing that I could do to make you love me less. This is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That our acceptance is not based on our works and it's not based on our obedience after our conversion, but it is on Christ and Christ alone. May we not be like the Galatians, bewitched
0: into believing that something other than Christ can provide hope for us.